things are just growing like crazy. Um, I kind of wanted to ask you a question at the outset here regarding maybe our lawns and the maintenance of them. What would happen if, for whatever reason, you decided not to mow your lawn for a couple of weeks? Especially in the season we're in right now. That'd be a little crazy. Uh, I know the church's lawnmower, if it gets above a certain height, it can't even throw the grass out uh, the return anymore. It just gets clogged up. So leaving your grass for a couple weeks and then trying to mow afterwards, that would be quite the chore to try and maintain. What about this? What if you didn't touch your lawn for a whole summer? That'd be crazy. I heard that just before I got here, our backyard here was just totally overgrown with weeds and brush and all sorts of stuff. I mean, we know what it's like when you let something go for years and years and years. Actually, I came across some pictures in, uh, on the internet that kind of show like some formerly urban places that were abandoned to just let nature run its course. Uh, I think they're kind of interesting. Let me just walk you through them. Behind that tree slash ivy is a house. And uh, you can tell that at some level, people just gave up on trimming that thing back. Uh, how about this amusement park in Japan that was left uh, to just let nature run its course? I think there's one more picture of that. There's a roller coaster that is just totally overgrown. This next building, I believe, is in Belgium. It's a mansion slash castle that people abandoned, and you can see all the ivy and growth just crawling up the walls there. And then this one might be the most interesting of the bunch. This is an abandoned fishing village in China on an island somewhere over there. Look at the houses. Just totally overgrown. We know that when you leave things to themselves, they don't remain orderly. They fall into disrepair and they break down, be it your yard or your car or anything else. They need maintenance or else something like this happens when left unattended. This leads us to maybe a more serious question this morning that our text will seek to answer, and that's this. All right, I guess I don't have the question. Let me read it for you. What happens when God gives people up? to their own desires. If that's what happens in nature, what happens when God takes a step back and lets people do whatever they want? Do you think society flourishes? Do you think they remain orderly? Or do you think that it is chaos and wickedness and a spiraling out of control? Our text will answer that this morning. You may be asking, that sounds pretty intense for God to give people over to their own desires. In what situation would that happen? Romans chapter 1 is going to answer that for us. Let's turn there if you're not there already. Before you can answer the question that you see on the screen there, I think it's helpful to refresh our memory as to how we got to this point. Uh, so if you remember, I said last week that verses 16 and 17 are kind of like the theme verse of Romans. I'll just read those again for you. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Here we are introduced to the theme of Romans of justification by faith. The way that we are declared righteous before God is through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. There is no other way. And everything that follows these verses is an elaboration or an explanation of this theme. From chapters 1, 18 and following through the end of Romans, we are going to be discussing this main theme of justification by faith alone and all of its components in great detail. But before we can get to the good news of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us, I also said last week, that Paul begins the good news of the gospel by first telling us the bad news. That's in verse 18, look at it with me if you will, where we're told that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. To put it simply, we need this righteousness of God. We need to be justified because as things stand, God's wrath is revealed against sinful humanity. Our sin has made us enemies of God. We are deserving of judgment and condemnation. To have the wrath of an all-powerful God directed at all of us is a frightening and a precarious place to be. And the question may be posed, are all people really deserving of God's wrath? What about the people that don't know God? How can they be his enemies? How can they have his wrath directed at him if they don't even know he exists? To which Paul answers the question in verses 19 to 23 that no one can say they don't know God because God has revealed himself in creation and mankind has chosen to suppress the truth about God. In creation, two things should be evident to us, that there is a God and that he is powerful. All it takes is to look outside and see those things. You, you can't help, I said last week, but look at the ocean and conclude, God is powerful. He, he exists. And, and mankind doesn't stop with just suppressing the truth. Secondly, they turn the worship that should be directed to God alone to idols. Verse 25 says that they worship and serve the creation rather than the creator. What we are observing in these verses is a willing rejection of God. People have all of them within their own hearts and consciences, knowledge that God exists. And they say, I'm good. I'll worship something else. It's a brazen rejection of him. This is why God's wrath is revealed against humanity. And as our text reveals this morning, this rejection of God has consequences. God doesn't let sin go unpunished. And so again, we come to the question, what happens to people when God gives them up to follow their own desires? Let's begin in verse 24. Where we read, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. There was a phrase that is repeated three times in this passage that kind of become uh, the verses around which we'll, be, we'll build our main points. Notice with me again where they appear. Verse 24 has the first one. We read that God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts. Verse 26, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And just like we observed what happens to a yard or an amusement park or anything else when you take a step back and let nature run its course, so too do these verses describe an explanation for us of what happens when God says, okay, you're on your own. What we are seeing here is that God's righteous response to sin isn't something that just has a far-off future date. This isn't just the day of wrath that is still future even to us. God's wrath is presently revealed on mankind for their sin, and the evidence of his wrath is revealed in what he lets them do, in the way that culture is allowed to just spiral out of control. I do want to clarify a couple of things here. When we read about God giving people up, that isn't a threat to God's sovereignty. It's not as if we envision God doing his best to kind of corral humanity, and eventually he's just like, I can't do it anymore, and he throws his hands up and says, do whatever you want. No, 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 no. God is still very much in control in this passage of Scripture. This isn't a threat to his sovereignty. We should instead read this and think that God is saying, you want to reject me and see what life is like on your own? Here you go. Why don't you find out? Let's see what happens, where this takes you. Uh, one scholar pointed out to me the irony of this. Here people are trying to reject God, and God's punishment to them is, have at it. See where life without me lands you. Is it really all that's cracked up to be in your mind? This isn't a new concept either. Psalm 81 actually explains a similar event for us in the Old Testament. God says, my people do not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Can you imagine how terrifying this must be for God to say, you think you know better than me? All right. Follow your own advice. I, I hope we have a high enough view of God that we realize that our wisdom is not something we want to be following if God's is available to us. 
Secondly, regarding God giving people up, this indicates that there is a sense in which God initially restrains people. If he, if he is able to just kind of let them go, there is therefore a sense in which God does restrain people to a point. And, and we call this common grace. It, it, it's the grace that all of mankind, saved, unsaved, evil, good alike, receive at the hand of God. Uh, we know that not everyone is a mass murderer, although humanity certainly has the potential to be. If left to their own, mankind can do wicked, terrible things. And the fact that not every unsaved person is doing them is evidence of God's common grace. Uh, Wayne Grudem helped, uh, and others, actually helped me see some others in Scripture, other evidences of God's common grace. One of them is uh, actually what Jesus describes in Matthew chapter 5, I believe, where he says that we need to be like God because God is gracious to the good and to the evil. He makes the rain fall on the good and the evil, the sun to shine on the just and the unjust. That is a common grace of God that even wicked people get goodness from him. Another common grace of God is that even evil, unsaved people have abilities and gifts and talents that God has blessed them with, that they can use in society to further themselves and society as a whole. Uh, Some others include uh, giving evil people the capacity to enjoy good things in life, to see a beautiful sunrise and enjoy going to the beach. Romans describe how God doesn't judge sin immediately. Although our sins are deserving of it, God in his grace delays that judgment, giving people a chance to repent. These are all common graces that people have. And one that we see here in Romans chapter 1 is that God actually restrains people from the ability to indulge themselves fully in their sin and in their flesh. But there comes a point when you reject God that he says, okay, try this out. I will step back and you can let your flesh and your desires run rampant. So let's work through each of these categories together. The first is that God gives them up to the lust of their hearts. Verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. In a general sense, the lust of your hearts could be a reference to literally anything that your selfish heart wants to indulge itself in. We know that the human heart is wicked and left unrestrained. It can come up with some pretty creative ways to be evil and to reject God. Maybe a more humorous example is we love cake and ice cream, but we put a limit on how much we eat. Otherwise, we know that it's not good for us. God giving people up to the lust of their hearts might be like removing that natural knowledge we have to not eat so much cake every day and just have at it, regardless of the consequences of those actions. However, where most scholars end up coming around to, and specifically with this idea of the lust of your hearts, is what the NIV reflects in its text. And it says, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. And that additional word of making this more specific, talking about sexual impurity, does seem to be consistent with how this word impurity is used throughout the scriptures. It is often talking about sexual sins. So one of the judgments of God 
one of his responses to people rejecting him is to let these sexual urges just run rampant. To know what is impure, we must first know what the Bible says is God's design for marriage and sex that is found for us in the garden. Genesis has a whole lot of um, introductory material that is significant for our worldview today. There was one man and one woman in the garden, and this was their relationship to each other. Genesis 2 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God's parameters for the sexual relationship are explained right here for us. One man, one woman, within the boundaries of marriage. Jesus in the New Testament reiterates this. Someone comes up to him with a question about divorce, and this is how he answers it. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now there are some people today who say that Jesus did not condemn this or that form of sexual deviancy, therefore it must be okay. Jesus didn't need to come condemn anything. He gives us the one true way that marriage and sex are supposed to be with each other. He says this is it. A man and a woman in the boundaries of marriage. Anything else outside of this is deviant. It's sexual impurity. Are we not seeing this in our culture today? It's almost normal for people to be living together. Pastor John has mentioned a couple of times that polygamy is now legal in our state. You can't hardly go anywhere online or anywhere out in public without encountering these sexual impurities. And what conclusion should we come to? Should we think God's letting the wicked prosper? Should we think God has somehow lost control of society? Actually, no. According to Romans 1, when we see these variants, we should be thinking this is a natural consequence of what happens when people reject God. This is judgment that sexual sins are allowed to flourish. In fact, some of that judgment is described for us at the end of verse 24. The dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. We're told that engaging in the lusts of our hearts results in a dishonoring of the body. That word here could mean to be treated shamefully or bring contempt upon your body. Uh, John MacArthur, I'll paraphrase him here, he says that for as much as man tries to exalt and elevate himself, the consequence of his sin only brings shame and humiliation. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says that the sexually immoral person sins against his own body, perhaps referencing that there are physical consequences to sexual sins. And for as much as our culture is trying to convince us that promiscuity is awesome and normal and to be accepted. Romans chapter 1 is telling us that when we see these things, it is evidence of God giving people up and judging them. There are judgments that are physical, emotional, economical even, 
I think sometimes we have this immature perspective as Christians, and we look at the world, and we think, they get to live however they want. How awesome would that be? And here I am, confined to a set of rules and guidelines, and it feels really constricting. Romans 1 is saying, no, 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 no. What you are observing is what life without God looks like. This is not fun. This is only incurring the judgment of God in this life and the next. Let's not forget how we got here. Paul says, you want to know why this is happening? Verse 25, they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. You'll keep hearing me say this this morning, but when you reject God, when you turn to idolatry, God says, okay, you want to worship other gods? You want to worship yourself? Go for it. One of the things that you're going to experience is just unrestrained sexual impurities. One commentator I read said that Paul ends verse 25 almost like he's been underwater and has to come up for a breath of fresh air. And he says, you know, he mentions the creator and he says, who is blessed forever, amen. He's just been talking about such dark topics that he's like, okay, I gotta say something good about God here because this is just heavy stuff. This is the proper sequence of worship that God as creator is worshiped and honored. But when we reject God, this isn't the only thing that happens to humanity. This isn't the only arena in which God gives people up. Verses 26 and 27 introduce a second one. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. The dishonorable passions in this text of scripture are crystal clear. It's none other than homosexual behavior. Paul is not unclear about this. Look at how he describes it. It's a forsaking of the natural attraction that should be between a man and a woman and instead being consumed with passion for people of the same sex and committing these shameless acts with them. And again, there is a stated consequence. The end of verse 27 reads that they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error again, likely a reference to some very real physical consequences for engaging in this lifestyle. I think we all know that there are some unpleasant realities for people who live this way. And again, let's not forget how we get here. Paul is saying when you reject God, when you ignore him in creation and worship other things, this is the outcome. He gives up your heart to what he calls dishonorable passions. Here the result is homosexuality. The scripture's description here of homosexual behavior as being contrary to nature, as being an error, as being a judgment of God, stands in total contrast to how our society views this, doesn't it? This is not what people in our world are saying about this behavior today. In fact, a lot of people would call what I just read from the scriptures and what I'm affirming affirming myself, they would call this hate speech. They would say we're bigoted that we're unloving. 
And I think the response to what we call sin, what the scriptures call sin, and to call it good, is evidence just as how far humanity has fallen. God really has given people up to these dishonorable passions. They've normalized it. And because this is such a prevalent issue in our culture today, we're actually going to circle back around to this at the end of the sermon and just discuss a couple more points about homosexuality and the dishonorable passions, as, call, as Paul calls them. But for now, no, this is not something that we should celebrate. This is a judgment of God. This is him taking a step back and saying, okay, when I give you up, this is one of the outcomes. Finally, look at verse 28. We're introduced to our third category of God giving people up, and we're told that he gives them up to a debased mind. I'll read these verses again. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. It's almost like these verses are a catch-all, and Paul is saying, in case you didn't get the picture, here's what happens when God gives you up to your own depravity. Not only does sexual impurity run rampant and homosexuality, but in case I miss something, here's everything else that happens. This is life without God. It doesn't get any better. And can you imagine a world in which everyone is left to their own devices and living out these attributes of 28 to 31? Can you imagine if everyone was a murderer and a reviler and a hater of God? What a miserable place this would be to live. Can we not marvel at God's common grace in restraining some of these things and allowing our society to flourish in spite of sin? There's an interesting cycle that is being described in these chapters. As mankind rejects God further, God says, okay, and they sin even more. And it's just this perpetual cycle of sin and depravity and spiraling deeper and deeper into wickedness. And to top it all off, verse 32 says, Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Chapter 2 will elaborate on the human conscience, the knowledge that everyone has of God's law and the ability to discern between right and wrong. And even though people possess this knowledge of right and wrong, they still participate in these activities themselves, and they give approval to other people to do them. This illustrates the larger point that Paul has been trying to make from the beginning of Romans chapter 1, verse 18. God's wrath is revealed on mankind for good reason. Not only has man rejected God and their knowledge of him in creation, and worshipped other things, they've committed idolatry, these two initial sins spiral into just absolute wickedness and godlessness. Mankind has willingly rejected God and chosen to live their own way, and it should be no wonder then that God's wrath remains on them. That this is the extent of human wickedness. It's horrible. I told you I wanted to circle back around to this topic of homosexuality because it is so prevalent in our society today. I think many of us know that. 
Our culture is very affirming of this lifestyle. Maybe what you don't know is that this belief has actually infiltrated what I'll call loosely the church. And there are people who would claim to be believers who say homosexuality is okay. Practice it. As evidence of that, I came across an article this week titled, What Does the Bible Say About Homosexuality? It's written by the Human Rights Campaign, and this is the opening sentence of this article. At the heart of the claim that the Bible is clear that homosexuality is forbidden by God is poor biblical scholarship and a cultural bias read into the Bible. What they're saying here is if you think still that homosexuality is wrong, your bias is showing and you're a poor biblical scholar. This article goes on to talk about the authority of scripture. Amazingly, I'm not even sure how this is true. These people say that God's word is believed by many to be the inspired word of God from God himself. They never challenge that. They seem to be standing on, the, on this belief that the scriptures are authoritative, and they move from the origin of scriptures to interpreting scriptures. And they begin to talk about some of the passages of scripture that condemn homosexuality, albeit in a very loose and free way with the text, making it say what they want it to. In fact, they go as far as to say this about midway through the paper, that experience should inform how we learn God's truth. That we should wrestle with the context of the writers and our own lived experiences. And this is what they conclude with, I think, the last sentence of the article. God has already clearly embraced LGBTQ plus people into full communion and it is now the church's responsibility to simply honor that reality and rejoice. Now, I see many of you a little bit in disbelief, but can I ask you guys this morning, is this conclusion that God is affirming of LGBTQ plus people compatible with what we read in Romans chapter 1? Not at all. If we are understanding the context of Romans chapter 1, it is being told to us that this is a judgment of God. That this is what happens when God steps back and gives people over to a debased mind, to their impurities, to their, uh, their dishonorable passions. Homosexuality is a product of that. And to say that God has already clearly embraced these people is to be at odds with the scripture. And so I ask you this morning, what is your foundation? Is it experience or is it the word of God? Because if we let people, I'll say false teachers, infiltrate the church and write these articles that teach false doctrine, then we are going to be guilty if we aren't discerning and what they're trying to prove or say about the scriptures, then we are going to be guilty of doing what verse 32 describes, giving approval to people who practice this lifestyle. 
I realize that what is being said this morning is not popular. Some people might even call what we're saying about homosexuality in particular as being hateful. We do not hate these people. We would love nothing more than for a homosexual couple to walk through these doors and to hear the good news about Jesus. In the same way that pick any attribute on this list, that we would want a murderer and a slanderer and an inventor of evil, a hater of God even, to walk through these doors and hear the good news about Jesus Christ. But what we are not going to do is somehow say that this is okay. That God is affirming of this when the scriptures are clear that this is not the case at all. The need for clarity about homosexuality and any of these sins really is of the utmost importance. Because if homosexuality is not wrong on this list, then neither is anything else. Right? If homosexuality is okay, then the whole list is okay. And thus, what need would people have for Jesus? If they've not actually done wrong in practicing these lifestyles, why do they need a deliverer? If people have actually not committed unrighteousness, then why is Paul writing this book about the righteousness of God that is available to us? You see, if homosexuality is actually something that God approves of, then there's no reason to write the book of Romans. There's no reason to write about the gospel. We have no need of a savior if these things are okay. Do you see this? The gospel begins with man's sin, many of which are articulated here for us. And it is our sin, it is the bad news that makes Jesus so much more awesome. So what do we do with this text? How how do we interact with people that are living a homosexual lifestyle? First of all, we love them. We model the compassion of Jesus that when he looked at the crowds who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he was moved with compassion. We model the example of Jesus who was actually known for eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. Can we not model that same love in our own lives today in a similar way to invite these types of people into our homes for meals to invite them to our kids' soccer games, to invite them to join us for Christmas or Thanksgiving? Can we not have the love of Jesus Christ for sinners like he has? And then if we are ever in a position to confront or challenge their lifestyle, my advice is to not beat them over the head with coming to Romans 1 and saying, look at where, you know, how God views your lifestyle here. But maybe take a little bit more gracious of an approach Maybe still take them to this passage and say, you know what? I'm on this list. God's wrath is rightly revealed against me. 
Do you see yourself on this list? Can I introduce you to Jesus? Who even though God's wrath was rightly revealed against sinful humanity, any number of sins, not just one in particular, Jesus came and satisfied the wrath of God that you and I deserved. I'll end with a verse from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You might already know what's coming. Paul says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Pay attention to what's on this list of who's not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the verse isn't over yet. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you find yourself on this list here in Romans chapter 1, there's still hope. The book of Romans is snowballing towards the good news, but first, we must consider that mankind is wicked to the core. And in their wickedness, God even steps back and lets people indulge in more wickedness. And it should be evident to us, we have no hope of coming to God on our own. There is nothing we can do to span that gap. But in Christ, you can be washed and sanctified and justified and have peace with God instead of the wrath that is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Let's pray together. Lord, as we reflect on the sinfulness of humanity, we see ourselves here. We have to be humble enough to admit that we exhibit these very same tendencies in our own lives, in our own hearts. We are wicked. We have shook our fist in your face and said, we don't want you. And yet in your love, you sent Christ to redeem us. And we believe that for all who call upon the name of the Lord, they shall be saved. And so let us uh, take that news to our loved ones and our friends and our neighbors and plead with them that there is no other name under heaven by which they can be saved. It's in Jesus Christ alone. And the sin that they are indulging themselves in does not fulfill. It leaves us empty. It is God's judgment on us. But there is one who bore the judgment in our place. I pray that these truths would just inspire our hearts to love you again. I pray that you would give us boldness in a world that is teaching false doctrine and even sneaking into what we'll call Christianity, that you would help us to be discerning and to know what your word says about current topics. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.